Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If this is your first time hearing our show, good news, it's a really simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are or taught us something beyond the curriculum. And every educator we have on this podcast, whether a teacher, a coach, a professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. So please, we do want you to be a part of this show with us. You can tell us about an educator who inspired you and the teachers in your community who deserve a spotlight, whether you had them years ago or yesterday. You can email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And this week, we are joined by Dr. Sheila Vimu. She's a biology professor at Wabanzi Community College. We talked about the research she's done about community colleges and the research she's helped her biology students conduct. You know, community college students don't often get the opportunity to do undergraduate research, but some of her students even got to travel to Washington, D.C. to present work on mapping the immunogenic regions of COVID-19 variants to help better understand vaccine design. Like, really awesome stuff. We also talked about her childhood in Southeast Asia, how she uses case studies to show how scientific innovation happens across the globe, the importance of diversity in STEM, and the phrase that she starts all of her classes with. Not only is science for everyone, understanding and appreciating science is something that everyone can do. All of that and so much more on this episode. But before our conversation with Dr. Vimu, I've got a few other education stories I want to share. Starting in the 2024-25 school year, all Illinois K-12 students will be required to learn about Native American history, tribal sovereignty, genocide, and much more. And I got to learn more about what it means for students, including Native American students, here in Illinois. I like this. Here in the basement of a Chicago church, Aaliyah Begay is teaching a group of about a dozen fellow Native American students some traditional dance techniques. This is a summer program from the American Indian Association of Illinois. Most of the students are in high school and they're all from Chicago. Some jump right in and dance, while a few others stand on the sideline before their friends' laughter and the music coaxes them in. Begay is going into her third year at Columbia College Chicago studying marketing. She's Navajo in Santo Domingo Pueblo, and she travels almost every weekend to dance at powwows across the country. And today, she's not just teaching dance and showing her jingle dresses, she's also talking with the students about her college experience. There's not that many of us, and there's a lot of stereotypes of not Native Americans not making it in life or being high school dropouts, and you guys want to break that. Begay is glad Illinois just passed the new Native American history bill, but she wants non-Native students to know that their story hasn't ended. We should be teaching everyone that we're still here and that we're not just like in the past. We're still out here and we're still thriving and everything. That is a key part of the legislation, which is still waiting for Governor Pritzker's signature. Students will learn about the history of indigenous people in Illinois, but also Native contributions to the arts, sciences, and more. And it'll describe the large urban Native American populations in Illinois. The state has no federally recognized tribal land, but over 70% of Native Americans nationwide live in urban areas, not reservations. And Chicago has one of the largest urban American Indian populations in the country, with around 175 tribes representing 
represented. Older students will delve further into tribal sovereignty, the genocide and discrimination of Native Americans, and forced relocation. The instructional materials for those lessons will be developed in consultation with the Chicago American Indian Community Collaborative, a group of independent Native organizations that the American Indian Association of Illinois is a part of. Doreen Wiese is an enrolled member of the White Earth Ojibwe Nation in Minnesota and the president of the American Indian Association of Illinois. Wiese has been an educator in Illinois for over 50 years, and she was the president of the Native American Educational Service, the first urban American Indian college of its kind with an all-Native faculty. And she thinks the last time the State Board of Education developed any Native American history curriculum, it was written by her 40 years ago as an undergrad. It was uh, about Native people and plants and animals in Illinois. She laughs and pulls out the old yellow booklet still with the State Board seal in the corner. But this time around, we see and others met weekly with the State Board's Curriculum Committee. It's still a work in progress, and she says they were able to borrow some from the curriculum in Wisconsin, but they largely started from scratch. She says Native American representation has been rare within Illinois education. She knows of two American Indian teachers who taught in Chicago public schools in the past half century. And she says there are still very few Native American students attending college in Illinois. I have homeless people. I still have kids dropping out of school. I can't talk the parents into borrowing a bunch of money to send their kids to college. Believe me, I'm working the summer on it to try to convince them, say it's worth it. Andrew Johnson is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the executive director of the Native American Chamber of Commerce of Illinois. He's also a part of the community collaborative, and he helped lead the legislative push for the history bill. He says the plan will also finally give Native Americans a seat on the State Board of Education's Equity Committee. He's been really proud of his work with the state board and Rockford State Representative Maurice West, who is the main sponsor of the bill. But his experience in Springfield wasn't totally positive. One of the representatives, I'm still troubled by it. He said, well, this education, you know, it's it's going to include how natives uh, were involved in ritual sacrifice of children. I don't know. I was just floored. But there were some unforgettable, uplifting moments, too. Late last year, Native American drums and dancing could be heard in the Capitol Building Rotunda during the Native American Summit. And Johnson was there gathering support for issues like the Native American History Bill, along with several other Native-related legislations, like one focused on Native remains receiving proper burial in Illinois. It was overwhelming. I mean, there were tears. Oh, you're getting me. Jeez, you're getting me going now. Um, It was... uh... It was just so key. It was so important for our community to be there and to do that. And it definitely made our legislators know that there were uh, natives here uh, in that building and ones that were a vibrant community uh, that could contribute a tremendous amount uh, to the state. He said hearing those drums in the halls of power meant a lot to a group that's had so little representation since being forced off this land, a state that's named after a confederation of tribes. And they hope that this new curriculum will help students from every background understand Illinois' true history. And last year, the United States Department of the Interior released an investigative report about federal Indian boarding school policies that took Native children from their parents and communities in the 1800s. And I got to learn more about the history and the legacy of Native American residential schools here in Illinois. I'm on the side of a busy road in suburban Cook County where an old gate pokes out of the trees. Here's the sign, St. Mary's Cemetery. Rusty sign, but it's still there and inside it looks really well maintained still. 
A rusted cross is on top of the sign, and the little cemetery sits on the far corner of Maryville Academy's campus. It's a Catholic child care organization and residential school. And back in the 1880s, it was known as the St. Mary's Training School for Boys, and it was one of two federal Indian boarding schools in Illinois. More than 50 Native American boys were sent to St. Mary's. Several of those children died at the school, and according to a dissertation on the history of the school, are still buried in that small cemetery. Dave Back is a history professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and he's been studying federal Indian policy for over 30 years. There are no federally recognized tribal lands in Illinois, and Beck says the native kids at St. Mary's were from South and North Dakota, 900 miles from home. And newspapers at the time even chronicled parts of their journey, detailing the native kids dancing together, racing local kids, and drawing pictures of horses. The children were taken from Spirit Lake Reservation community and the Standing Rock Reservation. So those were Dakota and Lakota Indian boys. And then apparently some Ojibwe boys from the Pembina band of Turtle Mountain. And unlike many boarding schools, St. Mary's also housed non-native orphans and dependents of Cook County. It wasn't created as a native boarding school, but Beck says the school had financial problems. They needed a source of funding. And at the same time, federal officials were in this really pushing this policy in the Indian Bureau of cultural genocide to take Indian children away from their families and put them into boarding schools where they would be forced to learn English, where they would, the hope was that they would forget their tribal heritage and assimilate into American society somehow. In exchange for educating those children, the school got federal money. And at one point, school trustees mentioned asking their Indian agent, James McLaughlin, to see if they could get Sitting Bull to come to St. Mary's as an attraction to raise money. A few years later, Beck said, McLaughlin was the one who infamously ordered the arrest of Sitting Bull. Of course, he was murdered by the police who were arresting him. So McLaughlin is... Uh, responsible for the death of Sitting Bull in 1890. The visit never happened, and the school settled just for the federal funding. The indigenous youth were trained to be farmers at the school, although officials said they were supposed to learn other trades too. Given the difference between the farmland of Illinois and North Dakota, the idea that those kids could use those skills back home was unrealistic, Beck said. Not to mention that racism often kept Native people from fully participating in the economy anyway. Uh, I said, hello, my relatives. I'm from uh, Spirit Lake, North Dakota, or Spirit Lake, Dakota Nation. I'm also Meskwaki, Hidatsa, uh, and Anishinaabe. My name is Deidre Whiteman, and I'm the Director of Research and Education for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. That was Whiteman speaking in the Dakota language. The Healing Coalition is pushing Congress to pass the Truth and Healing Commission on the Indian Boarding School Policies Act. It was reintroduced by Senator Elizabeth Warren in June. Whiteman, who grew up in the Quad Cities, says a commission could help answer basic questions like how many kids were forced to attend these schools. Researchers know it's in the hundreds of thousands, but what were their names? Papers at the time mentioned some of the St. Mary's kids' names, children named Katka and Ohakti, among others, with new English names listed alongside them. Whiteman says it's hard to know if those names are totally accurate or not. Also, a commission like the one created by the Canadian government could investigate how many children were abused or died at the school and what the long-term impacts on the families have been. It's really hard at times to talk about 
a lot of the stuff that we um, we have to hear about, about, you know, people experiencing, you know, all these atrocities at these schools when they're just children, when they're just babies. And I look at my, my grandson and I look at my, my own son and, and my own, my girls when they were babies. And I couldn't imagine that. Another part of her work is research. The DOI has released 408 boarding schools uh, that were federally funded. Us at NABS, we found 521 schools. That could mean more schools in Illinois that weren't federally funded. She says several former residential schools have reached out to them about acknowledging their history and establishing a relationship with tribal communities. Some tribes have also worked on repatriation to return home children's remains buried at residential schools. In Illinois, State Representative Mark Walker sponsored a bill that passed this spring which asked Native communities to set up a committee the state is required to consult with on Native remains cases, although it's focused on remains of Indigenous people from Illinois. Well, there's a really atrocious history. So mm-hmm. I've always thought these things don't belong in museums or anywhere else, except back where they came from. The other residential school in Illinois was the Homewood Boarding School in Peoria County, which is now a state park. The Illinois Department of Natural Resources operates the site, and in May 2022, after the Department of the Interior's report, then-director Colleen Callahan said they'd be reviewing how they tell the history of that site in the coming days and months. A spokesperson for IDNR told WNIJ that they had nothing to report yet. The now Maryville Academy doesn't mention the school's time as a boarding school on its Our History section of its website. Maryville's executive director, Sister Catherine Ryan, says they're working on, quote, how we will recognize this part of the history, but declined an interview with WNIJ. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Obanzi Community College biology professor, Dr. Sheila Vimu. Enjoy. It's been 10 years I've been at Obanzi. I started at Obanzi as an adjunct, uh-huh. teaching a few classes. And while I was teaching at Obanzi, I was also teaching at many different community colleges around the Chicagoland area. And I also taught at Northern Illinois University. So that's where I started. When you're an adjunct and you're teaching at several different places at once, I don't think people all the time really grasp what that lifestyle is like. It's a very tedious lifestyle. I think it's like being a mountaineer. Really? Yes. It's like rock climbing to me because you miss one day and you miss one class and you forget what the students in one institution or perhaps what subject you're teaching. It can be very chaotic. But yet at the same time, I think a few years of being an adjunct was very instrumental for me because it really gave me an idea of what does it mean to teach different student types at different institutions. And then it also gave me a flavor about what is it that I need to do to just become a little more of a student-centered approach to teaching. Because sometimes when you're teaching at one institution with one student type, you're not really aware of the multitude and the facets that that other student types can bring to your table. Yeah, that's really interesting too that like teaching at multiple institutions gives you such a a breadth of knowledge of all sorts of different student populations, right? At different community colleges, at different areas, you know, uh, different diverse populations. That's a really, it is a really fun perspective to to be able to have. Whereas, you know, at one school, you kind of get stuck looking at things through the distinct perspective of the kind of students that go to that institution. That's correct, Peter. Yeah. I was reading some of the things that, that you've written 
And I think that you wrote one that was on the Wabanzi website last year that was about kind of celebrating diversity in STEM. And you talked about how at the beginning of every semester, at the beginning of all of your classes, you start off with uh, a slogan. And I was wondering if you could start off our conversation with, with that too. Yeah, so one of the things that I felt with that's really important is science is for everyone. And that's the slogan that I have continued to use. And that's the slogan from the C2SD, which is the Chicago Council for Science and Technology. And I have sort of rephrased it a little bit to just say that not only is science for everyone, understanding and appreciating science is something that everyone can do, right? Mm. So there is a can-do part of it. And I think that's really important because when you think about teachers, and this is about educators, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes college teachers don't think of them as teachers. We think of ourselves as educators. So I just want to sort of yeah. keep flipping, flip-flopping between the words of an educator and a teacher. So when you think of ourselves as educators, we are actually helping our students think of the world differently, often actually seeing the world differently. And many of our students who actually come to Wabanzi are coming from a first gen, first generation college student background. And they, they do know that science exists and they do appreciate science. But I also think that you can do science is really important. And I think that's the role of an educator is making that student feel proud of seeing that moment in time, right? It's that moment where you sort of motivate yourself to try just a little bit harder, just one step harder. And then from there, <clears throat> you start to feel like, oh my God, I can do this. Not that I'm trying to get everybody to be a scientist. That's not necessary. And not that everybody needs to be a PhD or a master's undergraduate science student, but just this total immersion and appreciation for science would be an amazing point. Yeah, I like that framing as science is both for everyone, but also everyone can do science. Because you're right, like I think also, like we do think of community colleges as a very accessible place, right? Like as a place that's for everyone, accessible and affordable. That, But that also doesn't mean that everyone that comes into your class thinks that they are the type, you know, a person that can do science. And I also think this is very, very important because Diversifying the future STEM workforce of America has a lot to do with this underpinning notion, right? Um, science careers can be very broad, right? Science careers can be very different for different people. You could be in the legal area, then you could be a science person. You could actually be in the government and in civil forces, and you could be a science person. You could be in the armed forces and in the military. You could be a science person. You could be anything with a science can-do personality. Yeah. And it's it's probably, I'm sure, something that, you know, that feeds into you wanting to say that every semester that, you know, people that go into those fields or, or even, you know, again, not even someone that necessarily wants to be a scientist, but someone that goes into your classroom, especially if it is, you know, someone from a, you know, like historically marginalized background that, you know, don't often get opportunities in STEM that, that you get to be the person that is like that first person in line that they see at a community college that has to feel, you know, kind of powerful. Yes, it does. And even if that particular student doesn't feel that they can do it. Yeah. But I have had students say, you know what? 
I've said this to my younger brother. I've said this to my cousin, that this would be a great place for you because you are that kind of person. So now we are not only thinking of that one student, but we are thinking of this community. And I think that's what community college just really support is the community of practice that we have, which is not inside the institution, but it's actually within the student and within the families of those students. Mm. Yeah, and I, I saw in the thing that you wrote, you cite like a, a couple statistics about, I think it's community colleges educate about half of all STEM students in the United States. Yes, they do. Community colleges in the past have t- technically been technical workforce kind of right. a space. Yeah. But now we are seeing that the, te- that the community colleges are one of the greatest spaces for two things. One is you would get this one-on-one student-teacher interaction because our class sizes are really small. Mm-hmm. We have 24 students, in some, some cases, 16 students in a class. And I think that is a space that can really help these students think of the world beyond the classroom they can actually learn some high impact practices that we were talking about before is high impact practices are the spaces where you really sort of immerse yourself in the knowledge about that discipline. Now Mm. you don't have to become a subject matter expert, but you just in that class, you are immersed in that class. For example, if you were you were in a science classroom, you were immersed in science. If you were in some other classroom, you were immersed in that particular subject. Yeah. And I, I saw that, you know, you try to, you know, do that obviously through a bunch of different strategies and, you know, helping lead like student research is, is a part of it. And again, I think undergraduate community college research isn't something that people necessarily think of when they think of collegiate research either, which is really cool. I think I saw there was some work that yeah, I think that you were a faculty advisor for recently that was about like uh, identifying different things with COVID variants and stuff like that. That's really cool. Yes. So I've always thought to myself that incorporating some student-centered practices are very important, right? So we all know that. And that's, that's what everybody says is important. But I've also found that guided inquiry is really important. And that is where the educator comes in very important, is at a very important role. Because the educator or the teacher is one who not only shares that knowledge that they have about the discipline, about undergraduate research, but also is a coach, but mm. it's a scaffold coach. So you're, you're letting the student drive the engine. Mm. So you're not, on, you're not the sta- sage on the stage telling the student, move to the left, move to the right, go straight, but you're guiding them from the side. And then you're also being an encourager. So if they sort of do a mistake, they're just stuck, you just sort of nudge them and say, hey, what's going on? How is the research going? And they're like, "Mm." you know, sometimes when students are afraid to let you know that they're stuck, they'll be really quiet. (laughs) And then that's the time you need somebody who can be an encourager. And that's what uh, a teacher can be. And then I also feel the undergraduate research is really important because it helps the teacher become what I think of believer in their dreams. Mm. Many of these students have dreams. That's why they come to college. And I think college is like a fertile ground for dreams to happen and for dreams to grow. And if I can be there for them in pursuit of that dream and just light it for them just a little bit when it just gets extinguished, 
I think I've done my job. So I'm, so that is how I look at my undergraduate research opportunities. Um, it's called CURES. It's called Course-Based Undergraduate Research Experience, yeah. C-U-R-E-S. And we use a database from Tiny Earth and the Immune Epitope Database. And these are great databases that we can use. But more than all of this, it is the underpinning of how students can be allowed to take ownership of their work. Um, I want them to feel empowered. I also want them to feel the experiences of ups and downs of medical research, of any mm. undergraduate research. It is not just a straight line, like, hey, this is how I went to the top. It is like, oh my gosh, what happened today? This was terrible. The work that you were asking me about the mapping out the immunogenic regions of the SARS-CoV-2 variants to understand the vaccine design piece, right? So one of the students, I mean, this was a class project of four students who worked on it. And out of the four or five students who worked on it as an honors project, one of the students really took the project seriously and started to map this out and started working with some scientists from the La Jolla Institute of Immunology in California and built out, yeah, and this is a community college student and built out this entire poster and submitted it to the National Science Academies. This is the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine in Washington, DC. And guess what? The poster was accepted. That's amazing. So the student got a poster accepted, free travel, paid travel to go present at this National Academies, took pictures standing on the podium, blah, 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 all of this. And just came, and of course, I being their, uh, what do you call, mentor, also got to travel to the National Academies with them. But I was, I was always the sage on the stage, right? I was not the sage on the stage. I was the sage on the side. I was watching how they were sort of navigating this entire space. And after this whole experience was over, just came back and said, this was the most amazing piece of this entire experience. And I had never thought to myself that I would be able to do science at such a high level and that I would be able to present at the National Academies as a student and encounter scientists and talk to them, shake my hand, shake their hands. And the last thing that the student said was the most important thing. And this is what she said. She said, I'm going to use this opportunity to become an advocate for education for the underrepresented and the historically marginalized. Because I hope to use my experience to become a leader in this field so that I can con contribute to student success for other students coming with me, behind me in the future. And I said, you know what? Job well done, right? That is sciences for everyone, right? And then you bring along others with you. You know, I, I was thinking about just this idea of, you know, having someone there that, it, that knows when to encourage you, knows when to push you, knows when to do that is, is such a balance. You know, when we always ask teachers on this show, like, oh, like, why did you become a teacher in the first place? We often find that it's a mixture of, you know, either 
I had someone that did that for me and I want to be that for someone else or you know, I didn't have someone like that, so I want to make sure that for the next person that they have that teacher, that mentor that can help guide them along. I know that for some people it's also like a mixture of, of both of those things. And, you know, I, I was seeing that um, you talked about in some of your writing about like being an immigrant graduate student in STEM, that there was a lot of self-doubt and frustration that came with that. I'm sure that's a place where having that mentor, having that educator that can help guide you through the ups and downs of that experience had to be really important. Yes, because STEM can be sometimes very frustrating because there is a lot of content that you have to really get good at, a lot of terminologies and concepts. And then there is also this piece about being able to navigate the space, like learning how you do some of these experiments and uh, how do you sort of translate those experiments into a narrative that people understand. And then there is also this easy piece of what we call as the social piece of STEM. Mm. And it was really frustrating because I went to schools where we were 300 people in an auditorium or 200 people in an auditorium listening to a professor. And the professor was great. I mean, the knowledge was unbelievably fantastic. But just being one of that 300 or one of the 200 could be very frustrating. Like it didn't, it really mattered only if you knew that you needed to be here. If you were not sure that you needed to be here, nobody really seemed to care. And I think that is the point that I felt that doesn't matter what kind of spaces we go to, student-centered practices, student success, which is actually built on strengths-based rather than a deficit-based lens is really important. And I was really mindful of the barriers that students have. Mm. And I was also mindful of the barriers that I may have as a graduate student, I had as a graduate student in achieving my full potential. In my high school and in my early years of my middle school, I had some wonderful teachers and I sort of remember to sort of orient myself to those kinds of teachers rather than pick the teachers that I had in my graduate school. Because sometimes when good things are happening for you, you sort of forget it. You sort of let it go because you think, oh, this is how it is It is to be. It is not until good things are not happening that you start to realize like, oh my gosh, this was great. So some of the teachers that I had in my middle school and my high school they were good in a couple of things. One is they never let me give up on some things. And mm. I think that was very important when I was getting frustrated. That oh my gosh, I should not give up. Just because I struggled with something in the past does not mean I'm going to struggle with something in the future. So you can make something good of the present. So mm. that was something that my teachers in high school and middle school had. They also helped me in understanding the beauty of challenges. Sometimes I see that in my students a lot. They're afraid of challenges. When they, when they get a low score in a quiz, it really scares them. Right, it's, a, it's like a fear of failure, right? Yes, that's yeah. exactly. And I'm like, no, I'm not saying getting D's and C's is great. I'm not one of those advocating that. But I'm just saying that when you get one of those scores, it's a good opportunity to reflect back. And that is why the the work that I do is in study strategies, right? I've done a little bit of work on study strategies because I believe that when you are thinking about study strategies in STEM, it's really important for students to sort of think about what are the high 
impact study strategies that I can use. Maybe you just studied the night before the exam and that's not enough because you just reflected over the flashcards, you sort of went through the terminology, you prepared a quizlet and maybe that's not enough for you. Maybe you need to draw a concept map. Maybe you need to start thinking about how these things connect together. And I tell students that when you get these low scores in a quiz, it's a reflective moment. And it should be a positive reflective moment of what can I do better? Ask for help when you cannot figure it out. And when you can figure it out, follow a step-by-step pattern. I, I did see that you had done some work around study strategies and kind of a similar thing when we were talking about like student research or study uh, strategies, or I saw that you had done work about researching uh, biology education research at community colleges too. And like all of these things I was seeing seemed to be at a striking a similar theme, which is that I think for the study strategy one, it was like people hadn't really examined how this plays out at the community college level and that even you know student undergraduate research is not as common at the community college level it seemed like a lot of the themes i kept seeing were back to uh, people aren't thinking about the perspective of community college and you having to kind of go out of your way to advocate for your students both in the classroom and then outside and you're doing your writing and research in other ways yes and that is what i see that the community college is a great space for this kind of work because we bring in students from all types of high schools. Yeah. And we bring in students from a whole variety of background student populations. Ages. And yeah. Ages. Ages. Yeah. I've had, when I taught the evening classes, I had so many students who were working daytime or they were mothers, uh, they, were fam- they had families, they would wait for their spouses to come home from their work and then they would come to a class in, in the, during the evenings. And I could see the, the, the kind of uh, practice that it needed for these people to come out at 5 p.m., pay attention in a lab till 9.15 p.m. and talk to you after that for some help so that they can do better in their lives. I could see the courage that it takes to do this kind of work. And I think some of us who may not have been in that kind of a situation where we had to manage so many different roles in our lives may not really understand this till you sort of step, take a step back or take, take your feet off your shoes and sort of put it in their shoes and say, my God, what does it take for this student to do this? A whole lot more than anybody else. And then offering that student these research practices these kinds of high impact study strategies an undergraduate research experience, maybe some, even something as simple as a lab notebook, right? We all work in labs and having a lab notebook where you can document your research. You're not doing earth shattering research, but you're documenting research and research is what? Observation, hypotheses, some kind of um, elaboration of your results and a little bit of a documentation on troubleshooting and a, bl- and a little bit of conclusion of what you think you understood from this work. For a student to do that is unbelievable. And that takes them on this path, which I started off to say, science is for everyone. What is science? It's observation. What is science? Making a hypothesis. And what is science? is making some predictions. 
and what is science troubleshooting and making a results. Yeah. And then I know that like multicultural engagement is another piece of that for you, right? Yes. So multicultural engagement is something that comes very innately to me, right? right? Um, I grew up in Southeast Asia. Uh, a lot of my ancestors were from Southern India and their roots are all around Southeast Asia. Mm. So I know what it takes to sort of feel that multicultural approach. Now, even if our students are not from that particular background, for them to learn about people from different backgrounds is really helpful to them. And how better can you do, rather than me talking about my story, I feel that the best thing to do would be to talk about case studies. So I have built some case studies which are based on a couple of things. And one of them is because of the work that I actually did in Southeast Asia on ethnopharmacology, it is on bioprospecting and biopiracy in the discovery of antimicrobial compounds. So we're talking about consent and benefit sharing agreements. So we think about indigenous tribe like the Bideo of Borneo, how discovering antimicrobial properties of a particular microbe can be really important. But how about sharing the benefit sharing of that agreement, right? Or maybe an antisuppressant property of a plant that was discovered in South Africa from the indigenous people. And just sort of promoting science with this idea of ethnicity and multicultural peace is really important to me. Then I've also thought about malaria. I mean, we all know malaria, mm -hmm. but malaria is in certain countries is still a very big, important global burden. So I have a case study where we talk about malaria in Puerto Rico. How does the malaria in Puerto Rico sort of differ from malaria in Tanzania? And how does the malaria in Tanzania differ from the malaria in Vietnam? So now we are doing cross continents. And now by looking at malaria and talking about the life cycle of malaria and talking about the effects of malaria, we're also talking about global burden in different countries and continents. Then we think about skin and we think about skin color and the integumentary system. So instead of talking about just melanin, but we're talking about melanocytes and what can it do for skin burn and why in different populations skin burn can be different and how we can study the integumentary system based on that. So I have liked to do use science as the as a major fulcrum of this kind of cultural story, but also help students visualize the community of cultural capital. Or what do they bring to this? So there needs to be some reflection piece to it, which I found it to be really helpful. Yeah, and it's real world issues and challenges. And I think that like a um, fallacy or a trap people that sometimes fall under is that because, you know, especially looking at it through an American lens with STEM, that like, women and people from, you know, racial minorities that are historically marginalized often are, you know, marginalized in STEM and don't have the same opportunities. But then some people hear that and think that that means that people from those communities or cultures haven't had like substantial contributions to science, which is obviously not true. Like obviously there's been many, many significant ones, but people think because, you know, some people from some groups don't have the same opportunities means that, you know, they haven't had scientific breakthrough or scientific impact, which of course is not true. Yes. 
and that is that is sort of the idea of what I was trying to yeah get the students to think about. But I want we ha- we sometimes have a lot of content to cover in our classes. Yeah. Because many of our students are transferring to either the nursing program or the physical therapy program, and they're going to different places. So in order to sort of value the identities of these students and foster data literacy and content, all of it into this 16-week class can sometimes be very, very difficult. And what is not helpful for us is some of the traditional biology textbooks, they lack representation. So if you look at a 2020 paper by Wood, from the proceedings of the society, the Royal Society, I think, um, they talk about this, that if you look at a traditional biology textbook, they do lack representation. And if the demographic shifts in the scientists cited by textbook continue to be at the rate they are right now, in, it would take 18 years for citations from women scientists to reflect our student population. Hmm. It would take 30 years for citations from Hispanic scientists and 500 years for citations from black scientists to reflect our student population. So we are charged to do some work in some ways or the other. I, I think that I saw that you were, correct me if I'm wrong, either currently or were a part of the, the National Biology Teachers Association, kind of their chair for community colleges, right? Yes, yes, and that was very helpful, being the chair of the two-year section for the National Association of Biology Teachers. Um, I learned a lot about not only working workings of being an educator, but what I really understood was the mission of what does biology mean? When you start thinking of it for the entire spectrum of students who are coming from high schools, because we, as a community college student, we're getting students who are coming from high schools directly as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, what What is the mission of a biology teacher? And to sort of build this framework. So I've really enjoyed the National Association of Biology Teachers. I've also been part of the CUBE's um, network and BioQuest network. These are amazing networks. I learned how to do case study scenarios through BioQuest. Well, you know, we talked a, a little bit towards the beginning about your background. And I, I think that you mentioned that you came to, the, did you come to the United States as a graduate student then? Yes, I did. Yes. I, I'm curious to go out and talk about your background, your, you know, your kind of teacher origin story here. Is teaching something that you have always wanted to do back to when you were a kid, or was it something that came to you later on in your life? Teaching, I think I grew up in a family of teachers. My mom was a geography teacher. Uh, my dad was um, was teaching electrical engineering. So, so a te- lot of a lot of STEM in, in, in your yeah, life. Yeah, a lot of STEM. Um, <laughs> A lot of teaching in my life. As a sixth grader, I remember grading my mom's high school geography quiz and maps. Uh, she, We lived in a very small town. It was a rural town. Sometimes we would not have electricity after 8 p.m., but my mom would have to grade all of these papers for next day to give it to students. So, I, so she would be telling me the answers 
and I would be grading it on the student uh, notebooks mm -hmm. and counting them to say six out of 10, eight out of 10, 10 out of 10. And then she would say, say, say this comment, excellent, need to improve or, you know, whatever. Yeah, of course. And I would be, I would be her writer sort of, and I was only in sixth grade at that time. And I still have this love for the nature and geography because of that. And I can read maps. So, so all of this was sort of part of my life, but I never thought of myself as a teacher. Um, till very later on in my life, I realized that talking and teaching and explaining was something that I like to do. So I wouldn't say teaching as teaching a subject, but I like talking and explaining. So if somebody would say, uh, where are you from? Right? Most people would say, okay, I'm from this part, but I would never be that kind of a student or a person or say, you know what? I grew up in this little town that was eight degree latitude. And <laughs> There's the this, geography teacher background there. That, <laughs> yes, yeah, eight degree latitude. And this town had only one street. And You're a storyteller. Yeah. So I was a good, um, I like to talk about stuff that was around that question. Yeah, one so of that, the one of the back or one of the things that I read that uh, like a little bio about you. It said that you have a deep interest in the science of storytelling, mythology, and well-being. I love that. Yes, I do, and I yeah. think um, I would eventually, when I grow up, I would want to be a storyteller. And I think I am being one right now, but I yeah. want to be more of a do this for a living kind of a storyteller. Yeah. So that's been so. Maybe teaching is a facet of that. Yeah, I think that it absolutely is. I believe a lot in this one theory, and um, and that's the theory of being in the state of flow. Hmm. I don't know if you have heard of it. It's by I have heard of it, yeah. the, okay, it's by Chixen Mihai. He's a very famous father of the state of flow. That's what people call him, and he talks about this as something you do for learning theories, right? So. And what does that mean is when you are in the state of flow, you're so immersed in that state of flow that you're not, you're not bored, but you're learning something and you're so engaged, which is what we call now being in the zone. Yeah. I, right. And as a, as a teacher, I think of myself as being that person who is sort of getting students into that state of flow. If not the entire 75 minutes of the class or the three hours of the class, but maybe a 15 minutes of that class when that student is totally engaged in that state of flow. And we call that as engagement. A lot of people call that as very broad engagement. Yeah. But I think engagement is very superficial. I would like to call it as a state of flow. Now, so do you see your role as a teacher, though, as someone that facilitates, that just facilitates getting your students into that state of flow? Or do you feel like you are also able to connect to that flow state in your teaching, too? Yes, I think yeah. it's a mutual. It's um, yeah. Yeah, it's a mutual state of flows, right? Because as a teacher, you have to be in that state of flow to sort of make that link between something creative for that student to think about and something productive for that student to do. So it is this very, very, um, I would say a narrow band 
between what is boring and sort of mindless, yeah. but yet something which is really creative and you can actually have something tangible to produce. Because as a teacher, we need tangible project products because we are giving a grade. We are giving right. the students a degree. We can't just say, be creative, do whatever you want. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. So we have to have that little fine moment. So I feel that that state of flow is for me to get to that moment. Like there's a product, there's productivity, there's something that I can actually engage my students, but I can also grade them. But for the students, the state of flow is from making this experience enjoyable and not boring, but yet challenging enough that they find themselves for a few minutes in the zone. I wouldn't say for the entire time. So yeah. there is a balance between challenge and a balance between skills. Right, because you can't and get I there think, on the first day of class. You have to build yes. a foundation to get to that. Yes, yes, yes. And that, I think, is very, very important. And that has been used a lot in the education world in many ways where they say that there's something called proximal zone, right? They say, what is a proximal zone in some ways would be what can you give a student just enough? It's almost like hiking poles, right? Yeah. Just enough for you to get to the next step, but not enough for you to get to the top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. You know, we, um, I think we, we started off talking about your background and, you know, becoming a teacher. I want to, I want to really quick go back to that because you read a point where you said that, you know, both your, both your parents were teachers. You had that as a big part of your life growing up, but it wasn't something that you initially, it's not like you, you know, had the intention of becoming a teacher all the way through, but you learned that storytelling is something you really enjoyed talking and communicating with people. Do you remember the moment where it, it flipped to where you decided to pursue education as a, as an actual, just like career path? I don't think there was one moment. No? No. I think it was just a follow-up of multitude of moments. Yeah. And then I suddenly realized that I enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, I also felt I was enthusiastic about it. I felt like I could get up in the morning and go teach. Um, it was not something I had to push myself to do, um, which was really good. And I also like the fact that as a teacher, I could learn a lot of new things hmm. and experimented in my classroom. So teaching to me was almost like a scientific experiment. I said, you know what? I could learn something and I go learn at a conference or I go to a learning community or I'm part of an online course where I go learn something. And then I'm like, how can I get, take this information bring it back to the classroom. So now here is an observation. There is a learning Then I bring it back, use it in the classroom, test it out a little bit, see my student response, get some student feedback. And this is why I say student feedback is really important. Yeah. Feedback is what takes this entire thing. What you said is the process. It's through the processes where we braid ourselves, right? So braiding is really important. As you braid 
through different layers, you start to see that it's not just your passion alone. It's not the primary education goal of just, are you passionate about something? But it's also about, can you nurture other goals into this so that your excitement can be enhanced with every, every day? And there are some days where I feel like, oh my gosh, do I really have to go? Yeah. Do I really have to check this student email <laughs> and respond? But then most of the days are good. So that has been my so both your parents were teachers, though. How, what did they think about you becoming a teacher then? Because we've had it both ways on this show, where we've had people who had their parents were teachers, and they were like, great, we always wanted you to become a teacher. We always knew this was the path for you. And then we've had the opposite, where they've had parents that have been like, ah, you know what, we didn't think that you wanted to, to do that. You know, we didn't want to push you in that direction, since, you know, that's something that we do. How, how, what was their reaction? Interesting you asked that, because my parents were like, Oh, we have, we always thought you would be a good teacher because you were always teaching some of the kids in our neighborhood, yeah. and you know, and you were go, you were helping me do this, and they were not surprised that I became a teacher, yeah. which is interesting. But what they were surprised were that I was able to create this into some kind of a scientific narrative for myself because <laughs> my parents knew that I had this scientific mindset, like you know, asking a question and seeing if. I can analyze that and sort of making sure that I can manifest some of the challenges and the skills together. And I like complex questions. They were like, oh, I see now why you became a teacher. Like, okay, good mom. <laughs> I really like that mindset. I, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to articulate that to other people too. I think the way that you talked about being an educator is also something for you, you know, a space for you to learn new things and bring those back to the classroom. I think that, that, that is, you know, that other people do that, but I don't know if I've quite heard it articulated in that way where it is an experiment for yourself to bring new things in and learn new things through teaching, not just, you know, to be someone that imparts knowledge onto other people. Yeah. And I think that is very unique of community colleges. And this is where I want to bring as a community college educator, 100% of the time we spend is in teaching. We are the teachers. We are the classroom practitioners as well. So we are not just teachers of content from textbooks. We are also practitioners of how to improve the classroom experience for our students. Mm. So this is why a community college classroom can very easily become that scientific space because what are we are we are teaching the students to be able to give feedback to themselves so think of a classroom with 24 students think of a classroom of 20 students right so we are able to do that in a classroom of 200 students in a classroom of 100 students where you have teaching assistants who are doing that mm. it's very different yeah, that's a perfect segue. I just had two more questions for you. The last ones I always ask are, you know, what's something about teaching community college that you just wish more people knew about? What's something about community college that you think is is maybe more important than people might realize who have never experienced that setting? What I call community colleges is a distinct group of colleges. This is how I think of them. And I, why I call them as the distinct group of colleges is because there are around 1,400 community colleges in the United States that we know of. And they do three things. 
that everybody thinks they know, but they don't know. They really offer relatively low cost workforce training. Mm -hmm. They they prep all of the students that transfer to universities and four years. And community colleges are what we call the stable for lifelong learning Mm. because they're students who may want to change their career path. This, they would always start with the community college. Like suddenly you have this thing like, oh my God, I've been doing this all my life and I, have, I want to do this. The first place you think about is, let me go to a community college, take a couple of classes there and see what we do. The fourth thing that makes community colleges an amazing classroom practitioner experience is this. It's open admissions. It's not selective. So when people do research and they say, this is the kind of educational experience you see in this group of colleges called X. We already know the students that go to that college of X had this level of ACT scores, this level of SAT scores, this background of AP credits, but we are what? Open admission, we are public, and that makes us very unique for any classroom practitioner experience. Because now you can say it was not self-selected. Everybody in there just came because they wanted to come in. And that makes it really, really important. The other thing that is really interesting about community colleges is although this kind of classroom experience and practitioner experience is available in a community colleges, they're invisible when it comes to education research, and especially biology education research. Because nobody thinks about biology education research in a community college, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that is the space I think I would love to be a spokesperson for, because I think this is so important because some of the best education innovations, the best practices that we can see that come from a four-year or a university may not apply to our student population. So we need to be doing our own thing so that we can actually talk for our student voices so that we can empower the population of students that come to our classes and we can share their perspectives and talk about the assets they bring to the world that's coming right next to us. Well, Sheila Thane, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Thank you, Peter. I feel this this is such a privilege and you've done such you made me feel very young, very comfortable. Thanks so much for listening to Teachers Lounge. As always, please do feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we get all of our great guests like Sheila. You can send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing the podcast, please do subscribe. Leave us a rating. Share it. It really is the best way to get even more great perspectives on this show. You can subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show. You can find a link to do that on this episode's webpage over at wnij.org. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ups for the music you hear each and every episode in this show. And more thanks to Spencer Tripp for our Teacher's Lounge logo. I've been your host, Peter Mudlin, and we'll be back with a brand new Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.